pre-show quid pro quo. Eric, you get one question. It can be any question in the world. It could be, how is the weather where I'm living? What is my favorite reptile? It can be any question. I have to answer it as honestly as possible. Go ahead and ask, Eric. All right, I'm going to keep it real easy. Are you more of a dog person or a cat person? Oh, uh, dog. I would try to pause and really try to think about it, but if, if I had to take into battle an animal or if I had to choose between a cat and dog, some, some kind of quest, I'm, I'm going to take the dog. As much as I love cats, dogs are where I, I, I just love everything about them. I, I grew up with a golden retriever, and those are dogs that are way more human than they should be. Her name was Jem. She was my best friend. Just love the the fact that dogs seem to give you back as much as you give to them. Cats, you know, they, they can be good. You can have them around. They, they, they come to you when they want affection. But a dog, you, you have to work with a dog. A dog is a, is a partner. I think it's been said before that uh, dogs have friends and cats have staff or something along that line. I think that that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of it. If I had to uh, pick, it would be, it would be a dog. Thank you, Eric. That's a that's a really good question. I'm surprised nobody's yeah, asked that right. yet. <laughs> well, you know, now nobody else can, right? There you go. Cross that off the list. Welcome to What Magic Is This, a podcast that butchers every Latin pronunciation every time. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about magic, the occult, the esoteric, the paranormal, the supernatural, and the weird. And I have a very special guest. His name is Eric. Eric, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. Perfect. Thanks Thanks for asking. I just want people to know right off the get-go that we are going to be doing something very new for this episode. This is the first time where I will be recording with somebody who is not actually in the room with me. We are recording this episode via Skype. So I just want people to know if I sound nervous or a little bit different, uh, it's because I'm doing something new. I'm going to try and make it uh, sound as natural as possible, but uh, please be patient with me. I also want people to know that I'm not abandoning having guests over at the bachelor pad at at any point to record. Uh, This is another weapon in the arsenal. Also, I want people to know that Eric is a fellow occultist. might have said earlier, I'm never going to have another occultist on my show. I want to have people that are interested in magic to talk to them and if they have any kind of questions. But I think for this episode, because Eric has been very nice to me in the past, it's about time that we get some who's well-versed in magic and the occult and the esoteric to see kind of where he's coming from or what kind of questions that he might have. And so, Eric, you have your own podcast. It's called Arnomancy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. It's a podcast about all the same stuff that your podcast is about. Magic, the occult. I focus a lot on uh, tarot, and um, there's a lot of astrology on it. And I guess the the format's different. You know, mine is is primarily an interview podcast. Uh, so where, whereas yours tend your your podcast tends to be sort of like you've got one topic that the whole mm-hmm. episode is about. Right. I'm not sure that my podcast has ever managed to stay on topic for that long. No. <laughs> I mean, we can get through like a whole quarter of a podcast on the same topic, but after that, like, who the hell knows where right. it's going? But yeah, I, I've been podcasting for a while, and I, you know, I'm really, really glad to be on your oh. show. I think this is going to. I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited about the topic, and I have prepared zero questions Perfect. for you, <laughs> um, which should ensure that all of my questions are really at least halfway stupid. 
Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> That's how I like them. Great. If you haven't followed the show before, I give my guests a list of about 25 topics. They get to pick one. Eric had about three, and he was like, oh, let's maybe do this one or this one. And I said, no, no. If I'm going to give you a nudge to one direction, I think that we should really talk about this guy. And so Eric has delightfully, and to my excitement, chosen the topic of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Now, this is kind of like a subset of the the podcast called The Fool's Gallery, where we talk about certain individuals who carved out their own little niche within the world of magic or the esoteric. I love these ones because uh, a lot of the individuals that I bring up are people that I, I find very fascinating or interesting, or they might even be a hero of mine. Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa is one of these people. He is an enormous figure within the occult. So, you ready to dive in, Eric? Oh, yeah. Perfect. So... Who? Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa in a nutshell. Occultist, theologian, mercenary, soldier, physician, spy, scholar, legal expert, peripatetic polymath, prisoner, heretic. So if you want evidence that people lived amazing lives in the past, Agrippa would be a very good case for this. Through one book or three, depending how you cut it, he changed our perspective on the occult and magic forever. His stature within the occult circles cannot be diminished. I think anybody worth their bones within the occult or within magic, if Agrippa is not within your top five, as far as not your favorite, but people who have changed the occult irreversibly, Agrippa is one of those guys. I'd say that people that are interested in magic, they need to know about Agrippa and his work and what he did with the occult. Let's get into a little bit of a life story about Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Uh, He's mainly a 16th century figure, Renaissance peak. So if you can conjure in your mind what was going on during the Renaissance, we had a lot of new scientific innovation occurring. We had a lot of ideas kind of whirling about. We had old texts from the Mediterranean coming in through mainland Europe and being translated. Things like the Corpus Hermeticum, a lot of Plato as well. So this was kind of the the, the background of when Agrippa was looming large. He was born in 1486 in Cologne, Germany. He came from a noble family, They weren't really rich, but you did have, in certain towns, higher blood families, families that their name would have meant something. We don't know a ton about uh, Agrippa at the beginning of his life. We know that his father was interested in astrology, and he probably taught Agrippa some astrology when he was quite young. He studied at the University of Cologne, and from 1507 to 1509, he became a mercenary for the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Maximilian I. Apparently, he did a pretty good job of this because of the fact that Maximilian made him a captain in the army. And a thing that I think that people don't really talk about a lot with Agrippa is that he was made a ritter. And if you don't know what this is, that is a knight. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a fucking actual night wizard. And I'm shocked that more people don't make more of this. And to me, it's unbelievable. So all your Dungeons and Dragons fantasies were made true by Agrippa. Yes, a wizard knight. In 1509, he traveled back to Germany and he became a student of Trithemius in Spondheim. If you are not familiar with Trithemius, he is another character who will definitely get a show on this podcast. 
incredible, incredible figure. He wrote treaties on how to draw spirits into crystals. Apparently his library was unbelievable. He worked a lot with hmm, probably demons and spirits and angels and all of that kind of thing. I'm shocked that he wasn't burned, but uh, there you go. Uh, Trithemius was remarkable for also being kind of on the forefront of modern cryptography and steganography. And there's a lot of evidence and maybe some quest. Uh, there actually is not a lot of evidence. I don't think anybody's ever taken a really close look at it. But um, he's got this great book called The Steganographia, yes. which um, it looks like a bunch of demon conjuring stuff with tons of barbarous names. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that a lot of it is actually encoded instructions for encrypting and hiding messages and so the the thought is that he probably he might have used this method to hide messages in some of his other books trithemius wrote a lot anyhow indeed that's, <laughs> aside he probably deserves his own episode at absolutely some point. and he was a huge influence on john d and the same thing that you just mentioned about trithemius the whole barbarous names of the angelic names were when d was a spy anyways I'm shocked that he was not burnt at the stake, but Agrippa was one of his students. Agrippa apparently liked Trithemius a lot. I think he dedicated the three books of occult philosophy to Trithemius. Trithemius himself just said, I approve of the work you're doing, young Agrippa, but kind of keep this on the down low, buddy. Maybe don't talk about it too much. Now, a lot has been made about the fact that Agrippa was Trithemius' student. Truth be told, from what we understand of, of Agrippa's letters, he really only spent six weeks with him. So not a lot of time. That was like a month and a half. Well, that is a month and a half. It's not like a month and a half. We also have to understand at the time that there was a lot of Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah that was going through. You had Pico de la Marandola. You had Jonathan Reuchlin. They all kind of had their certain take on the Kabbalah, and Agrippa loved this. He was very interested in this. Agrippa was also very interested in a character by the name of Marsilio Ficino. Uh, this was the guy who took the Corpus Hermeticum, the person that's a patron at the time, which was one of the uh, the higher up in the Medici family. It was Cosimo, I think, uh, told him to, whatever you're doing, stop talking about Plato, stop translating Plato, Plato. I want you to translate this Corpus Hermeticum. And he did. Huge huge influence on Agrippa. Agrippa later became a soldier again. He traveled. There's talk of him spending time in London. I don't get I didn't get a lot of information from that, but he also spent time in Italy. All of these travels, there's ruminations that he was a spy. He certainly was a spy in Italy, but that's kind of the Italian thing, especially during the Renaissance. Everybody was a spy. If you weren't a spy, you weren't anybody. Uh, while in Italy, he had a couple of patrons. And uh, we need to understand, though, he was always writing. He was a man of letters, and he was constantly working on things, always at every moment as he traveled and was doing his thing. In 1518, uh, this was actually kind of cool, he got somebody off who was being accused of being a witch. He stood up for this person and he gave his his, his two cents and the, the person was acquitted. He moved to Geneva and there he became a physician or a doctor and eventually he found another patron, Louise of Savoy. Uh, things did not go very well with Louise. She kept asking him to do astrological prognostications. Agrippa was like, no, I don't really feel like doing that. Show me the stars, Henry. Show me the stars. And uh, I, I can't do it. I've got a headache. And uh, there was... Sir there, Henry to you. That's right. <laughs> More travel. He was just always on the move. Uh, he had three wives. We know this for a fact. Uh, one wife died. And I think uh, two of his wives, he, uh, he just kind of got rid of. He had a somewhat large family. At least six children. I don't know the exact number. There's tons of letters to friends that he had of things he was thinking about and what was 
was the most prevalent in his mind. He had students and, and colleagues, one of whom was uh, Johann Weyer, uh, who will also get his own episode. Not much is known uh, later on in his life. Johann Weyer, his student, said that he disappeared in 1533, which is also the year in which his three books of occult philosophy were published. Weyer apparently said that he died at the age of 49 in 1535 in Grenoble, France, which is at the foot of the French Alps. I want people to understand, though, that he was the traveling sort. He was all over the place always. He never settled very much. And people within the occult circles, they like to say, you know, the James Bond of the occult world was John Dee. I think there's the story of John Dee signing his letters to Queen Elizabeth with two eyes and then a hand shielding the sun out of the eyes. Of course, the two eyes being two zeros and the hand being a seven. So you get 007. That story is definitely apocryphal. But I think that a better James Bond of the occult world would be Agrippa. So three works that we know of. The first one is De Occulta Philosophia, which was written in 1510. Copies of it kind of floated around Europe, but it wasn't published until 1533. I will be referring to this text as either DOP or, as Eric suggested, the three books. So if I say any of those things, please know that I'm referring to this work. It is his most famous work. He also wrote a book called The Vanity of Arts and Sciences, which was produced in 1527. More on that later. And I didn't realize this, Eric, and I found this incredibly interesting, is that he wrote a book called The uh, the Declaration on the Nobility and Preeminence of the Female Sex. So apparently he was a bit of a proto-feminist. He, I read small oh, segments yeah, of it. Yeah. Well, back in the day, that was... That was quite something, so good for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was not only multi-classed, but he was also a feminist. Yeah. That's cool. I want to talk a little bit about the, the character or what kind of guy uh, Agrippa was. I think from everything that I've read, and, and f- in preparation for this episode, I went through about eight books that dealt with him at length. I get the impression that he was a very worldly, yet world-weary person. He seemed very intelligent. I don't know if I would go so far as to call him a genius, but he was very good at getting a lot of information into a very short space. Yeah, he was also incredibly religious. I think that the if you read any of his work, you can tell that he is a religious man. The other thing that I think is a huge part of his character is that he was incredibly sarcastic. If he was half as good of a magician as he was a troll, he would still be a great magician. He was very, very <laughs> snarky, uh, specifically in the book The Vanity of Arts and Sciences. Now, this book was made before the three books were actually published. There's two ways you can go about it. One of them could be that he wrote it as a recantation of magic. And the other way to read this book is because people were talking about him being a diabolical sort, that he wrote it as a very sarcastic, snarky, bitter treatise on, all right, if magic is bad, then so are arts and so are sciences and fuck everybody. It's, it is a wonderful thing to read, if that's true, in that context. And <laughs> people were certainly going after him for advocating magic. So I could see that this is probably the best way to read this work. If that is true, it's very funny. I wasn't really laughing out loud, but there are points where it's like, oof, that's, that's a bit much. So it's it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, all right, no magic, no nothing, nothing good for anybody. The only thing that anybody gets is religion. That's it. So, yeah. 
he was controversial during his life and especially after it. Again, going through all of those books, he seemed a good guy in rough times. And nowhere is this more evident than some of the legends that came out about Agrippa after he, he passed away. And the biggest one is uh, the legend of Agrippa and his black dog. Now, there's a story that he had a large black dog that was a demon or the devil itself. When he passed away, apparently the dog ran out of the house and jumped into a river and died. All of these stories of hound would follow him everywhere. And it was, I think that it seems more that he was just, as I said, that good guy in rough times. Uh, One of his students, Wire, he said this to say about the whole black dog situation. He said, I will no longer allow a statement that I have read in several different writers to be wrapped in silence, namely that the devil in the form of a dog had been a companion to Agrippa right up until his last breath, and that he then vanished somehow or other. It never ceases to amaze me that men of such repute sometimes speak think, and write so foolishly on the basis of an idle rumor that has been circulated. The dog was black, of moderate stature, and was named Monsieur in French. And if anyone knew him well, I did, since I often walked him on a rope leash when I was studying under Agrippa. I think that this false rumor arose partly because Agrippa was so childishly fond of his dog, as some people are, very often kissing him and sometimes putting him by his side at the table, just as he allowed him in bed with him under the covers at night after he had repudiated his third wife. Also, the rumor arose partly because my master, though he constantly hid himself among his papers and scarcely came out once in eight days, was nevertheless usually informed about what was going on in different countries. Some persons of little prudence used to attribute this fact in my presence to the dog as being a demon. But in truth, Agrippa received letters daily from every region written by eminent scholars. Dude was considered a devil because he really liked his dog. Like, if that doesn't say more about the time that they lived in, and I get it, dogs were viewed as accessories or used for hunting, that Agrippa, who would talk to his dog, and he was affectionate to his dog, people were like, what the, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? Like, what's, what's going on with this? I kind of had that feeling about all dog people. <laughs> I take it you're a cat person, Eric. <laughs> well, I mean... Yes. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> yes, so there's tons more legends about Agrippa. There's stories of somebody breaking into his house in, in France and opening up one of his books, and as soon as he does this, the, the devil appears or demons appeared, and then Agrippa just walks in and says a couple of words, and they disappear, and later this person goes crazy. Um, the Christopher Marlowe play, which was his version of the uh, story of Dr. Faustus, has the line, as cunning as Agrippa was, and this was a couple of decades after after Agrippa passed away. For a period of time, especially in France, but in certain areas of Central Europe, books of magic were called Agrippas, very much like how in Scandinavia books were called Cyprians, after St. Cyprian. These books were considered almost evil in and of themselves. The, the book could <laughs> curse people. Uh, people that would use it would either keep it chained in a barn up in the highest rafters. If you were going to use the book, you had to take the book down and, and beat it. So <laughs> all of these legends came up in and around Agrippa. So one of the more interesting things about Agrippa, summarily recognized by all books about Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, is how did a 24-year-old single-handedly compile and synthesize all European magic in 600 pages in two years. 
24 years old. I, I have great respect for Manly Palmer Hall for, I think it was at the age of 27, putting out the book, Secret Teachings of All Ages. Agrippa was 24. That's some Orson Welles shit. That is incredibly impressive. And the answer to that is that he had help. So one of these scholars who is uh, doing a translation on, on Agrippa, Eric Perdue, he said that uh, he could find basically all of the sources that Agrippa used to put into the three books uh, on Google Books. He said, I, I could find about 95% of them. Like they're, they're, they're out there. They're very available. But uh, back in the day, that is still impressive. He had a circle of friends. He had help. And it wasn't so much a secret society. The best way to think about it is that it was more of a brain trust. Uh, there were no nefarious names or acts of ceremony. It just seemed like it was a group of high-minded individuals. Agrippa was probably the leader of this group because he was the one that eventually produced the three books of occult philosophy. Sixteen of them that we know of, Agrippa talked about uh, in letters. Five of them, we absolutely know who they were. There's about seven maybes, and then there are four of them that it's just, we, we have no idea who this person is. They're mostly French. A few of them are from Catalonia in Spain, which is on the border of France and Spain. What we do know about this group is they weren't formed so much around a occult philosophy, but they were more humanists than anything. Agrippa was a huge fan of Erasmus, and I think in several points he talked to Erasmus in person. The, the group formed as an early proto-humanist society, a, a proto-humanist gathering. Yeah, that's at 24 years old, he, he had help. Now, the thing that's interesting is how much of the three books were actual ideas of Agrippa's. Mm, uh, it's tough to say. Eric Perdue might have something to say about that once the three books is finally printed. We're all waiting, but uh, take your time. Um, but I love this. I love the fact that he had a circle of friends and uh, that Agrippa could be the ringleader of this. And it speaks a ton to Agrippa's character as well, that he needed help and he knew it. And he found the best people to help him out, which is unbelievable. And I love it. Uh, as a weird aside, this reminds me of two other mysterious groups, one of which would have been the Rosicrucians or whatever were not the Rosicrucians. And then also later in the 17th century, there was a, oh, I can't remember. The, oh, yeah, the Invisible College in England, yeah, which yeah, was a Co correspondence circle. Both of which were sort of along the same lines. It was groups of like-minded philosophers and occultists and stuff communicating and sharing letters and knowledge and things like that. So it's a pattern that was really common. Yeah. Um, or at least not not necessarily unique to Agrippa. But that's really fascinating that we have so many. 16 names. That's awesome. Yeah. Are, who are the ones we don't know? Uh, they're just given like nicknames, strange nicknames. I will have a post up in the show notes for this in which somebody, I believe it was uh, Freder Asher, he did a bit of a deep dive on it and it's it's a wonderful read. That's basically where I got all my information for the, the whole Agrippa circle. But yeah, they have cool Roman names, Roman nicknames. So maybe the ones that are unknown were kind of the more... So uh, secret, yeah. secret titles. Yeah. Secret. Oh man, they totally... There, there must be a connection between Agrippa's circle and the Rosicrucians. There's got to be a uh, link. I would think so. I would think so. There's so little that we know. For a guy as yeah. big and as popular as he was, there's so much we don't know. John D. we seem to know, well, because he had great diaries about every time that John D. took a shit, which is true. I'm not making that up. We do have his diaries in which he mentions his bowel movements quite frequently. Um, uh, but Agrippa, it's like... <laughs> no such luck. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> 
Me too. So let's talk about uh, the book, the book itself, De Occulta Philosophia. So finished in 1510, copies of it floated around Europe. It wasn't published in its entirety until 1533. If you get the book and you start flipping through it, even if you're a little bit interested in the occult, you will find a lot of things recognizable. There's elements, there's astrology, you got Kabbalah, numbers, seals, angels, barbarous names, virtues, scrying, dreams, alchemy, some ceremonies thrown in there, and and much more. Now, most writers, well, most of the ones that were more than half a century old, they kind of talk about the fact that Agrippa splits the world into three realms. There's the elementary, there's the uh, the heavenly, and then there's the intellectual. Kind of, yeah, if you, it, it takes a bit of work. It's not as rudimentary as that, but uh, I could see why they would, they would say that. Uh, what can be said is that the book is very big on Neoplatonism, which was in fashion at the time. Don't burn me. Eric, what I love about your website, uh, specifically for people that are new to magic, is that you have blog posts on your website that are, what is this? So if people listening to my podcast, if I say a word like Hermetica or the art of memory, go to Eric's site because he has these things and they're very succinct, very good posts, very easy to understand. Like, oh, Hermetica, it's this. It came from this book, Corpus American, you got Asclepius, and you lay that out very well. So you were doing a great service to the occult community. You have a very good place for a lot of people to get things that I might mention that I haven't talked about yet in my podcast on your website. So uh, keep it up. Mm. really do. So that's really fantastic. Ah, thanks. I mean, this flattery is going to get you all sorts of places. I might reconsider my stance on dogs. Oh, perfect. (laughs) But uh, Eric, in this tradition of giving a short summary, explain for the listeners what Neoplatonism is. Okay, Neoplatonism, you wanted it briefly. Okay, so it's sort of related to the philosophy of Plato. It's like the mutant great-great-great-grandson of Plato's philosophy. Plato himself, if you want to learn more about like Plato and how he was interpreted by ancient esotericists and ancient philosophers, uh, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast is a really good place to go. Um, but basically, Plato and Aristotle and sort of that whole school of sort of classical Greek philosophers had this idea called emanationism, which is that everything starts from a first cause, which is uh, sometimes referred to as the monad or the one or the source or something of that nature. Yeah, you know that great Jet Li movie? Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, (laughs) We're dating ourselves, Eric. We're dating ourselves. (laughs) Holy smokes. Oh, God, that movie is... I mean, it is entertaining, but that's an aside. (laughs) So the one is the thing that is not moved, right? It is the, the, the unmovable source. And it's considered sort of the most real. As you move further and further away from the one or the, the, the source of all things, things become less real, but they become more physical. It's sort of considered, and it all, especially in Agrippa's time, it would have sort of been considered to sort of all be falling inward through a succession of different uh, realms spheres and, of, yeah yeah nested spheres of emanation until you get to the very bottom where all of the matter sort of collects and clumps together as you move towards the one you have like the realm of ideas you have the celestial realm the, where the uh, intelligible uh, realm the <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah or you know you'll hear people talking about the forms right. know, the form of the good Plato's or the form of yeah or Here's a mystery that I have never come to the bottom of. Every time somebody tries to explain Plato's forms, they use the example of the form of a chair. Right. 
Always. Always. I have no idea where it originally came You know what? I was thinking I've that asked, same thing. I, that's crazy that you brought this up, Eric. I've asked philosophy teachers and yeah. professors of Why philosophy, chair? and they're like, I don't know. Everybody uses the chair. That's crazy. And one of them was even like, oh, it's in Plato. <laughs> Plato never talks about, about chairs. Chair? I went and looked. Really? Plato does not talk about chairs. Okay. So anybody that's an expert on Plato out there, please. Why, cha- Eric? This is crazy that you you brought this up. I was thinking the exact same thing. Even an article I read recently in Alan Moore's. Um, it's everywhere. Yeah. When did we all decide on chairs? <laughs> is it because is it because every philosopher is probably sitting down? I think so. I don't know. I think so. I don't know. But maybe we can contact, I think we should contact Earl Fontenelle, yeah. the host of Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, let's do it. Schwepp, yes. and let's ask him about the chair thing. Episode maybe 78, can... chairs, why? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's sort of, Neoplatonism was sort of the reinterpretation of the reinterpretation of the reinterpretation of Plato's philosophy. Right. And by this time, it became very much enmeshed, really hit its stride, probably around maybe the third century CE in in the Mediterranean, probably mostly Northern Africa and the Middle East. Right. And, and probably, I guess, it, it was all over the Mediterranean. I always forget where all those guys are from. But it became really, really intertangled in practices that we would consider to be like magic and sorcery and stuff. Right. So, you know, there's lots of talk about demons. There's mm. arguments about the differences between theurgy and thaumaturgy. And then it just, everything just gets, gets more complicated from there it yeah. explodes into complexity yes. in a way that only nerds could do <laughs> right eric couldn't have said it better myself what people need to realize is that during the renaissance there was this other explosion of neoplatonism and it became neo neoplatonism neo neoplatonism and it became a big thing again specifically through one guy and that's uh, marsilio Ficino. Well, let's not discount Aldus Minutius. Yes. I mean, there were a number of there were a number of waves of it that happened, but it, it definitely started. It was the Italian Renaissance. Yes, you got the new Neoplatonism, Renaissance Neoplatonism. Yes, which is another. Yeah, it's a whole other kettle of fish. That one. <laughs> it is, but by, by this time, it ended up being sort of like reinformed by like uh, Renaissance science. Right. So you had like a more solid idea of like you know the crystal spheres nested inside each other and and christian theology sort of all squished in there so you had like layers of angels and demons and all sorts of things in yeah it had rules there were rules there were rules there were rules yes facino and agrippa loves them yep he absolutely does and he loved facino as well he took a lot from facino facino kind of came up with something called uh i didn't come up with it but he, he was he was big on natural magic now before we kind of had um, what can be considered naturalia and uh, Arab image magics, things like the Picatrix and the creation of talismans uh, and whatnot. Again, as Eric so eloquently put it, uh, you have this neo-neoplatonism. And basically, Ficino said that everything within existence is part of God's creation. These are natural forces. So things like astrology and alchemy, this is all natural magic. We, if I just said natural magic to somebody, it's like, oh, it's somebody who likes nature. No, no, no. That's, that's something totally different. <laughs> natural magic was just this, that there is the emanation of God or the, the one, and that uh, natural magic is, is, is a way of comprehending this. The natural magic wasn't very big on, on ceremony, the spirit 
spirits and the demons. Those were kind of like the, the lower end. And as Eric also said, there was a lot of, as much as we would like to say scientific investigation, I, it was more scientific speculation, I, I think. Also, this kind of combines with uh, with Christianity and in a way that you have the uh, the realms. This is kind of a way of getting this natural magic or magic in general kind of stuff it in there. Don't burn me. Don't burn me. I've, we're doing this and, it, and there's God there. So to get back to the book, uh, the first two, it's about natural and celestial things. Uh, you have the elements, the air, earth, water, fire kind of tangled in there with a little bit of Christianity. You have some, it's been called poorly understood Kabbalah. Uh, more on that later uh, from Pico de Mirandola and Johann Reuchlin. Plus a little bit of Agrippa's interpretation or maybe the Agrippan Circle's interpretation. Um, yes, more on that in a bit. Book three is ritual magic, basically. Ritual magic at this point was was still a thing. Something weird happens, though, in the third book. The magician and his divine virtues, or virtus, is thrust front and center. And this is a somewhat new thing. So, and he definitely took this from uh, Ficino, very much so. This is very appealing. And maybe the biggest thing that came out of these three books is that the magician is now at the center of everything. And it hasn't gone away, this, this idea. This magic is all to get closer to God via via magic. It's also from this that we get ideas, and it's not ex- implicit in this, but the idea of the holy guardian angel and uh, uh, all of that uh, that fun stuff that when you're new to the occult is is really fascinating. Also in the book, you definitely get the sense that Agrippa believes in a perennial philosophy. The components of ritual magic are a survival of the original way of being. <laughs> Magic is far more messy. I think I could talk about it in a, a whole different episode. I, if there is some kind of a perennial philosophy, I mean, nothing's universal. Not even sun worship is is universal. If there is one universal philosophy or story that we have, it is that somehow men were just brutish, and then eventually some spirit or demon or trickster god gave us something and then helped us evolve in our uh, journey in this world they gave us like prometheus giving the fire then that's a very new interpretation of the uh, the civilizing trickster god but as far as agrippa was concerned he thought that i am just continuing this great uh, chain of command through time and this is the perennial philosophy again you crack open these books very familiar at one point, Crowley was asked, that would be Aleister Crowley, for those who don't know, uh, this was towards the end of his life. He was asked about the Golden Dawn, their advancement in the form of magic, and I think he very offhand, probably drunk, said, oh, it's all Agrippa. It's all Agrippa. A little bit of Levy, a little bit of John Dee, but it's all Agrippa. <laughs> so, yeah, you flip through the books, a lot of it looks like Golden Dawn magic, very much. It was very familiar in its time. Uh, It can be said, these ideas didn't come out of nowhere. They would have been to a certain group of people, like, oh, yes, I've I've heard of this. So uh, it has that going for it. The book itself is, if I have to give uh, a bit of credit to it, it, it's easy enough to to read. It's a very easy read, and you can look things up very quickly. In this sense, it is very awesome that, oh, I want to learn a little bit about dreams. Flip, 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 flip. There you go. I've got dreams. (laughs) So you have to give credit to Agrippa here. He was great at compiling information and kind of putting them in the right places. So he's got that going for it. But I have to say this, the the how 
of magic is is lost in this book. The how is subsumed in what, which is very frustrating. And what I mean by that is that he gives you all of the things about magic, but he doesn't actually tell you how to do it. Or if he does, it's, uh, it's a bit of a maybe. So that's what I mean when I say the how is subsumed in the what. And that's that's the Occulta Philosophia, or the three books on occult philosophy. I was racking my brain while I was flipping through all of my books, Eric. I was trying to find, I want the Occulta Philosophia in one sentence. And a lot of authors came really close and was like, eh, oh man, it's almost there. It's almost there. But, uh, I found the perfect one. <laughs> yeah, I might have to begrudgingly say this, but I found it actually on Wikipedia. I just gave up and I went to Wikipedia. So what does Wikipedia have to say about uh, the three books? And it's like, oh, th- there you go. I-, I found it. So I'm going to read from that now. In short, Agrippa argued for a synthetic vision of magic whereby the natural world combined with the celestial and the divine through Neoplatonic participation, such that ordinarily licit natural magic was in fact validated by a kind of demonic magic sourced ultimately from God. By this means, Agrippa proposed a magic that could resolve all epistemological problems raised by skepticism in a total validation of Christian faith. Bam! That's an A-plus right there. So thank you, whoever Wikipedia <laughs> put that up there. You, you nailed it. So better than a, uh, Francis that's a, Yates. That's a one-sentence thesis. Yeah. No, yeah. It, it was great. So again, all of this was in synthesis uh, of, of Christian faith. Uh, rough times, don't burn me. The effectiveness of this magic comes from heaven. There's less barbarous names, uh, less ceremony. When you look at the book, it, it does indeed look like there's there's some kind of a system, uh, but it is missing the uh, step-by-step process. I'm going to read another thing. I'm sorry, there's, <laughs> there's only maybe uh, two or three more of these to go, but I'm I'm going to the, uh, the Cunning Man's Handbook by Jim Baker. It's a great book. I've talked about it before. So uh, everybody uh, sit down and get ready for this one. In the enhanced system, Agrippa and others developed magic meddled with mysticism to promote a transcendent connection for less coercive cooperation with higher powers, less dangerous, if done effectively, than intimidating demons in the older medieval form of necromancy, but still precarious given the chance for error, not to mention arousing the antagonism of ecclesiastical and secular authorities. Agrippa's demonic magic aimed to reach as high as the Almighty. The highest ritual magic is that by which the magician directly enacts the divine will in the natural and celestial worlds through a personal assumption of divine virtus. The authorities certainly would not have sanctioned the grander claim of Renaissance magi that a mere magician could legitimately communicate directly with God through magical illumination, as Agrippa seems to have proposed. What saved most would-be theurgists, however, was not only the isolated secrecy in which they pursued their art, but with the discouraging difficulty in figuring out exactly how the complex and obscure theoretical practices were supposed to be carried out. Such magic was beyond the capacity of all but a tiny minority of especially accomplished and economically dependent adepts. Hence, it was most often only of intellectual interest to anyone else. I strongly suspect that this grand Christian theurgy seldom went beyond the theoretical or bookish stage until centuries after Agrippa proposed it, by which time religious and secular sanctions had considerably weakened. An important consideration is that the ideal of Renaissance magus and Christian Kabbalist quite frankly quickly faded away in the 17th century, making ritual magic a rarity, whereas traditional magic or sorcery declined at an altogether slower rate. 
So it has a lot of the the what uh, in the three books of occult philosophy and not too much of the how. And this kind of brings me into the legacy of the book. It certainly was a bit of a stepping away from he old magic, which was, you know, spirits, uh, necromancy, adjurations, that kind of thing. This was the new hotness. We we have to talk a little bit about uh, the Yates hypothesis, and I will have a a episode about Francis Yates definitely at some point and hopefully somebody will pick her I'm, I'm tired of talking about the guys I'm just a little bit it's it is a bit of a boys club if I do say so myself would you agree <laughs> oh I would yeah Francis Yates is a really interesting figure too like she was such a forceful historian and we paid so much attention to her it might be another 50 60 years before we managed to really understand her impact so the the Yates <laughs> hypothesis was mainly that uh, when Agrippa released the three books and through Ficino and Pico de Mirandola that uh, this new thing was everybody just switched and went with this new magic and that is pretty wrong we're doing a lot of looking back with rose lenses when we talk about the Yates hypothesis and uh, I'm gonna read again from a book called The Transformations of Magic from Frank Klassen. And this paragraph is brought up quite a bit. I thought about trying to reword it myself, but it's almost impossible because the ramifications of this paragraph are so good and just so well put forth that I have to include it. So here you go from Frank Klassen, Transformations of Magic. A tendency to regard the magic of the 16th century as the product of new currents of thought and to accept Renaissance writers' disavowal of medieval magic at face value has also led to a selective approach to the sources. A significant body of evidence has remained almost entirely unexamined. Historians have focused on the high points of 16th century occultism, such as Ficino, Pico, Agrippa, and Dee, whose works may be demonstrated with varying degree of success to promote natural magic. Those that do not correspond to the learned magic of the great Renaissance mages are similarly dismissed as remnants of a bygone era. In marked contrast to this assumption, we find a vast literature of ritual magic in 16th century hands, the overwhelming bulk of practical magical literature in manuscript. In addition to the low magic of the necromantic tradition, this library continued to include the high magic of the Ars Notoria and the Swarm Book of Honorius, and continued to appeal to an educated audience. In addition, as in previous centuries, this literature treats natural magic as an adjunct or supplementary art, if it includes it at all. It may be the reason so little work has been done on 16th century magic collections is the limited amount of material in manuscript that confirms assumptions about the importance of natural magic, Kabbalism, Hermetic sources, and Renaissance Platonism. To be sure, natural magic continued to be an important part of Renaissance discussions of occult topics, and perhaps the most significant topic in learned discussions of magic. With few exceptions, however, the records of those who actually practiced magic, those who were not merely employing magical ideas for rhetorical or philosophical purposes, not merely promoting or purchasing magical texts as a curiosity but engaged enough to copy texts and compose notebooks, tell a different story. So the way that we're doing a lot of uh, a lot of this um, looking back with the, the rose-colored glasses, maybe I'm trying to put it in terms that people might understand, it would be like historians of music in 50 years saying that hip-hop was at its best when an auto-tune was the thing when <laughs> and that hip-hop oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
when when hip hop was at its peak was uh, was when autotune became the the go to and and they will use something like say Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy as the the high point of hip hop. They'll be like, yeah, no, look 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 back that he used autotune and people that's when it was definitely the best. And you go, well, there was hip hop without autotune in the past that was really good. There was hip hop being produced at the time without autotune and there was hip hop. No 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 no. It was autotune. It was just all autotune. So that's a good way for people to try and think about this. So necromancy didn't just fall away. Necromancy, sorcery, it, it continued. The working with demons, uh, that was still a big thing. The question can be asked, is Agrippa still demonic or diabolical as he was kind of portrayed to be? Uh, to Agrippa, he would say no. Um, this was in service to God. Uh, was he against demons? Mm. I don't think he was against demons, but he was more so against people that worked with demons. And there were two types that uh, that Agrippa talked about. He called them uh, geotics or geotics. I'm going to read from the last time, guys, so uh, thank you for hanging in there. I'm going to read from On the Vanities of Arts and Sciences here when he's talking about these, these other magicians. For some of them make it their business to adjure and compel evil spirits to appearance by the efficacy and power of sacred names, because seeing that, that every creature doth fear and reverence the name of its creator, no wonder if conjurers and other infidels, pagans, Jews, Saracens, or profane persons do not think to force the devil's obedience by the terror of his creator's name. Others, more to be detested than they, and worthy of the utmost punishment of fire, submitting themselves to devils, sacrifice to them, and worship them, become guilty of the vilest subjugation and idolatry that may be, to which crimes through the former are not quite so obnoxious, yet they expose themselves to manifest dangers. For the devils are always watchful to entrap men in the errors they heedlessly run into. From this insipid crowd of conjurers have flowed all those books of darkness." So he had a way with words, Agrippa. He certainly did. <laughs> I like that idea of the uh, the other magician. I think uh, Jake Stratton Ken uh, had a, a wonderful little essay called "The Other Magicians." But yes, yeah, not so much against the demons, but more against the people doing it. And it's put very well by uh, Doctor Alexander Cummins. He says that it's kind of the, uh, the it's the carrot or the stick thing. You have the ones that will you know beat the demons with a stick, the, use the god stick. And then there's the others, which will give the fucking carrot to the demon. Like, they'll not just do that. They'll, they'll, they'll welcome the demon into their home. So <laughs> I, I really enjoy this. <laughs> and what's, what's odd is that uh, Clausen men- mentioned earlier is that very shortly after Agrippa's death, you still have all of these texts of people doing necromantic summonings. Uh, you have Humphrey Gilbert and John Davis. Their book, uh, the excellent book on the art of magic, is going to be coming out through Scarlet Imprint fairly shortly here. I have not read it. But they evoked Agrippa in one of their ceremonies. So I wonder how Agrippa felt about that. So I can't, I can't wait to read that book. <laughs> what I can say is that Agrippa probably would not have liked me. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Do you think Agrippa would have been okay with you, Eric? Oh, I think we would have gotten along great. Yeah? <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would have enjoyed meeting Agrippa, but, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think Trithemius probably would have liked me a lot more. Oh, yeah. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. I would have had a fun time with Vire. <laughs> I, I really would have had a good time with Vire. I was like, dude, what are you doing to the spirit list? Yeah. Come on, just leave him alone. Why are you getting rid of Lucifer, Beelzebub, and Satan? What are you doing, bud? Come on. <laughs> Yeah, we need them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How can we do our stuff? <laughs> the Magician at the Center. This is also a legacy of the, the Occulta Philosophia. Three books. 
I think that this is such a huge part of magic, and specifically with what you will find in most bookstores, uh, things that are considered magic, they kind of go off of this uh, very plainly, Golden Dawn being the biggest example. I think it leads to a lot of disappointment uh, for people. I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but what needs to be said is that it's this this kind of magic that's put forth by Agrippa is, is yeah, it's very Christian. If if you do this form of magic, you, you have to realize that these guys really thought that the magic could get them closer to God. I also think that there's a, a bit of an overemphasis on Kabbalah due to the three books of occult philosophy. Uh, you would probably disagree, Eric. When people are learning magic, a lot of people say that you have to learn, you have to learn the Kabbalah, you have to learn a Hermetic Kabbalah, and that's a huge, huge legacy to, to leave. That's that's a 500 year legacy uh, because of this book. Yeah, I I mean I I studied Hermetic Kabbalah for a long, long time before I uh, came across like more traditional Kabbalah. At mm-hmm. which point I was like, oh. Hermetic Kabbalah is crap. <laughs> um, I mean, you you still have to learn it, right? Yep. Like if, if you're going to be doing anything in Western esotericism today, you have to have at least like a dusting of Hermetic Kabbalah yeah. or you're not going to get far. No. You're going to get lost really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and that really irritates me, but I do love traditional Kabbalah. I mean, you know, we were talking before we started recording. I've got like the whole Zohar back yep. there. I've, <laughs> I've definitely... Probably spent more money on Kabbalah books than I'm any trying to count them right now, books. Eric. It's like what, more than ten, more than ten volumes. Yeah, more than more than ten, fewer than a hundred. Fuck. I think there are. <laughs> I think there are. There are either twelve or thirteen. That's the Zohar, everybody. <laughs> but and, but that's not all of them, right? Like no. This is this isn't an episode about Kabbalah. No, no, not yet. Not there yet, are probably least. like three big sets of books that you really want to get. You got to get the Zohar. You got to get the uh, Sefer HaOtzchayim. Uh, which is the book of the tree of life, and you have to get Pardes Remonim, or the the Garden of Pomegranates. Yes. And both of those other two sets are all, both also in about ten volumes. Yeah. So you're talking like <laughs> you need one whole bookshelf. It's a lifetime of study. All the spines of those books. Oh man, it's like you go out and you buy a book by the feet. You're like, I just need like five feet of really fancy looking Kabbalah books, and then I'll be good. There you go. <laughs> they sell them by the feet. I love it. <laughs> Oh, sorry. By the meter. I, I oh, by the meter. Yes. yes. Well, you people buy them listen by the meter. People listen to my podcast all over the world, Eric. <laughs> they really do. I just found out that I'm number three in the <laughs> spirituality charts in Pakistan, of all places. So, thank you, people in Pakistan. Oh, you might want to watch out. They might be. Oh. Might be on a list. I am. Well, oof. <laughs> come get me. <laughs> uh, another legacy of the uh, the three books is that it said that you have to follow the whole natural magic proceed from books one and two before you can begin to think about uh, the ritual stuff this is also a holdover to this day we had a lot of can't do magic until you do this and then you have to do this and then you have to do this so that that's another legacy of uh, which I don't have a problem with but if if he gave you a way to do it <laughs> within three books of a cult philosophy the books themselves the three books they seem like a gun with no trigger which is a bit frustrating i think uh, yeah you got to do this uh, well, that thing about like you got to do this you got to do this before you can get to the magic stuff mm-hmm. there were a couple of earlier grimoires that went along that that path too yes um, the sworn book of Honorius is like that and gosh is the is abramelin abramelin is before agrippa isn't it i think it's like 1480 there's like a whole list of things you have to do before you get to the good junk. So 
I'm not sure Agrippa was alone in doing that. No. He might have been he might have been carrying on in tradition. I think it was Agrippa that really plaintively made it clear to everybody, look, you have to do this stuff. And not just in one book or a grimoire. It was like in anything, in anything and anything, you have to do books one and two to move to book three. You have to have all of these things in place before you can, to protect yourself, sir, or madam, to protect yourself, you have to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's important, though, that I personally think that it's totally okay to skip book one, but then you start getting into some of the interesting magic stuff that's kind of hidden. There's a lot of interesting philosophy hidden in book one. So I don't know that you necessarily need to work through it all. Like, it doesn't really matter if you know the Latin names of all the weird weeds associated with Saturn or that right. you know, like, all of the different types of birds that are associated with Mercury or whatever. That, like, you know, you can you can use that as a reference. Right. But then you, you come across interesting stuff like the like the 50s, the cha- like 50 through 60 in book one, chapter chapters 50 through 60 have like Agrippa's philosophy of like the mind and how communication works and how these various things go. And you can see in there, he influenced Bruno. Yep. Oh, Bruno loved Agrippa. Loved him. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of, uh, there's, there is a lot of philosophy in there. And then like book two is an incredible reference. Anybody anybody doing Western ceremonial magic today is undoubtedly going to something that is either Agrippa's book two or plagiarized heavily from it. That's got all the magic squares, all of the seals of the planets, all of the angelic names. Again, like, very familiar, extremely familiar, if you know even like yeah. a little bit about magic. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, in book three, actually, I would say I get surprises out of book three all the time i'm kind of like oh my god what the hell is going on you know book three is a is a strange bird another legacy of the three books is that it kind of has this idea of austere magic the the high magic and which was definitely the mantle was taken up by the golden dawn and other groups in the the late 19th century this idea that oh the necromancy and that one not the spirit bothering that's that's low magic that's low magic. Go along with Agrippa. We, this is the austere stuff. This is occult philosophy, the, the highest you can get with the occult. And, uh, I don't like that. But Oh, I hate that. Yeah. That, that, that philosophy bugs me. Yeah, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it about. <laughs> there's a real lot of it. I think, though, that the, the last thing I'll say about the three books of occult philosophy, this is not a detraction of, of Agrippa's work, is that it, it is overdetermined, I think. It's got a lot of equations and not very many solutions. It is the gun without a trigger. It's, it's hard to work. Just from the book alone, it is very difficult to work. Oh, yeah, it is. Although, I will say that when I was learning magic from John Michael Greer, we used two big black books. We used the big black Golden Dawn book, and we used Agrippa, and went through both of them kind of side by side. Yeah. On its own, not the most practical. But he might have produced a book that is very practical. More on that in a bit. That being said, here's my two cents. I know everybody's like, "Ah, I want to hear Doug read to filth. So here you go. You guys need to own it. I I think that much needs to be said. You need to own, Eric, I'm sure you agree. Everybody, at least read it, but you should probably own the three books of occult philosophy. So seemingly all modern magic roads lead back in some way to this book. And I think another good thing is that I I have a lot of people contacting me through the podcast. They say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, but I find this stuff fascinating. I say, of course you do. 
but I, I need a, an inroad. I need a way to get into magic. I think the three books is probably one of the best ways of, of jailbreaking that and getting over that. That and maybe reading the book uh, Magic in the Cloister by Sophie Page, seeing how people that were very religious got into the occult. I, I have to say that three books is great as inroads for that. As far as the three book stuff... You need to own it, but I spent a long time doing the, the more austere magic bullshit, and eventually I had to uh, I had to invoke the the great Jack Torrance, who said, "I'm the kind of guy who likes to know who's paying for his drinks." I think context is very important <laughs> within magic, and so you have to apply it to the three books of occult philosophy. It's very, very Christian. If you think that you're getting away from Christianity and the Bible, well, I'm not saying it's bad, but if you're trying to get away from that and you think that you're doing a bit more infernal, going through the whole Golden Dawn, Ecrepian magic is very Christian. As far as the Kabbalah and the emphasis on it, it has been said a lot that Agrippa's Kabbalah, I think you've even mentioned it, is, or the Golden Dawn, like, this isn't really Kabbalah. Yeah, yeah. Christopher Larich does a very good job of saying, like, look, he definitely severs Kabbalah from its roots, more so than Mirandola and Reuchlin. But you have to understand that this is Agrippa's Kabbalah. You have Agrippala, if you will. It's interesting to see the way that he morphed Kabbalah in his own way and what he understood at the time. Again, it was compiled probably by a committee. We have to understand, we keep saying the word Agrippa, but we have to understand that I'm pretty sure most of the ideas in the book weren't his. We know for a fact most of the ideas in the book weren't his. The book is a seeming system with no process as to how to work it. If you want to start to put things into practice, I find what is called the fourth book of occult philosophy the one to go for. There's stories that he didn't write the book. His student, Johann Weyer, who I've mentioned before, said that there's no way that he wrote this book. He would be mortified to know that this book is attributed to him. Dr. Stephen Skinner is like, no, I'm pretty sure he wrote and that Weyer's just being a little bit of a sucky baby about it. I, I really like the fourth book. <laughs> if there is a book that I will go to for Agrippa-style magic or Renaissance magic, that's the one I go for. For one, it's got the Heptameron in it. It's got the Arbitel in it. It's got some stuff on geomancy in mm. it. And it also has the essay that might have been written by Agrippa called On Magical Ceremonies which goes through the process of how you work with spirits. There's the consecration, invocation, evocation, uh, constraint, binding, and then you have the license to depart. That's all in the fourth book of occult philosophy. And that's why I, I tend to go to it. There's still a ton to learn from Agrippa, guys. You know, for a long period afterwards, when people had things missing out of grimoires, they would go to Agrippa. They would go to the three books to, oh, so this part is missing from this grimoire. I will go to the three books of occult philosophy. Okay, we're going to throw that in there. So it, it really did have an impact. But I wish there was more. I really, really wish that there was more to be said in the three books. Through all of this, Agrippa, he seems a complete puzzle to me, strangely enough. Eric, was he a magician? Did he do the demon stuff? Did he write the fourth book? He, I mean, he was definitely some kind of magician. He was definitely an astrologer. I, would, I think you know? so, yeah. And, and he definitely, like, he read the Picatrix. He read a lot of the source material. He was definitely, I would say, a physician and uh, what we would call a natural philosopher. I think he worked it. I think he did it. I think that there's enough 
hints of that in the third book, the way he talks about some of the stuff that he was doing this. And plus, like... Yeah, the letters yeah. seem to say so. Yeah, the letters I, the that, letters seem to say so. Yeah. I can't wait till somebody actually produces his letters. It's like, he definitely... Well, most likely. I'm just thinking about, like... You know, I mean, I go back to Agrippa a lot in my in my practice. The the three books is, like, a, is a constant companion for me. And I'm actually in my second copy of it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I do uh, use Agrippa a lot. And just sort of the way that things work out of it and the way that he sort of puts stuff down and like sometimes it's clearer than the picatrix sometimes he's got some pieces of philosophy in there where you're kind of like and he never would have written this down unless he used it yes yeah i think so not in the way he said it no so if he did indeed write the fourth book which i'm pretty sure he did I think, yeah, he, he definitely would have been a magician. Did he do demon work? Perhaps. The, there are letters before he disappears in 1533 that says that I have written the keystone to my entire philosophy. I now have the thing that folds it all together. And the question can be raised, was that the fourth book? Uh, it's a weird one because that is the one that's kind of like, oh, I, I see that I I have the process now. I do have a way of making it work. We will debate endlessly. Suffice to say, it's interesting how Agrippa is talked about after his death. Yeats saw him as a bit of a diabolic in some way. Other writers uh, have called him foolish in his ambition. To Christopher Lerich, he is a rogue philosopher. To his students like Bayer, he was just some dude doing his best. I like Agrippa. I think, just like you, I think I would have gotten along with Agrippa. And these, these characters that I have arterial differences with are the ones that I would probably like to hang out with the most. I would probably hate hanging out with Humphrey Gilbert and John Davis. Apparently they were awful people. They were really not cool, but I like their style of magic. <laughs> Levy seemed like an awesome guy. Agrippa, man, proto-feminist, got people off of being charged as a witch, loved his dog. Agrippa and I, we would have been best of friends. I would have had my differences, as I do with most of my friends. From what I know of Agrippa, I really think that I would have jived with this cat. I, I think it would have been a really cool person. What can be said, and I come to the end here, he seems to be anything depending on who is looking at Agrippa. He's a bit of a mirror. What you take in, your ideas of Agrippa, they might change, but what you want him to be is what he appears as. And because of that, he remains an enigma nearly 500 years after his death. Eric, may you and I be so lucky. You know, I don't know if anybody will remember us 500 years after our death, but uh, <laughs> I think making a podcast will help. I think so. I think so. Right. The side glance from history. Oh, we might. We might. It's, you know, it remains to be seen. Our ghosts will know. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I got the same, I have the same feeling about Agrippa. He just seems like he does sort of, he changes constantly, which I think also is a really good indicator that he was doing the work. He was totally doing the work. He put his mind to a purpose. He changed when he needed to. He adapted well. He totally learned how to love a dog after yeah. he went through three wives. Yeah. <laughs> he was a character. I, I don't know who to even compare him to today. No. He's one of those historical characters that is so unusual. There's just nobody you can say, well, he's probably just like this guy. I don't think there is. I don't think no. there's anybody you could really compare him to. I think Agrippa was his own sort of character. And I think that it sort of speaks really highly. I'm going to go back to Trithemius because, you know, Trithemius's 
more famous people was Paracelsus. And I think that you look at those two guys, Agrippa and Paracelsus, and the philosophies that they took away after like studying at the feet of Trithemius. They went out into the world and they both made huge impacts. Impacts that are felt to this day. Absolutely. But yeah, and Agrippa, he's he's yeah. that crazy occult mirror. I love his work. I like what he did. Although I have differences, he seems just like a really great guy. That's the episode, Eric. Uh, where to go now, everybody? Well, firstly, obviously, is De Occulta Philosophia. Yeah, at least have to read it. Um, there's several translations of his work out there. You can find one up on esotericarchives.com. Uh, hold off on buying a copy, though, because Eric Perdue, is, he's got his own translation. Probably it's going to be a fantastic translation. It's going to be coming out on Three Hands Press. They've said it might be coming out in April of 2020. Um, It's been pushed back quite a bit, but I I love Eric's work, and I think that this is going to be a bit of a game changer when he actually finally gets it out. I'm waiting for that. So if if you guys can be patient, um, maybe go to Esoteric Archives, give it a read. This is really interesting to you. Otherwise, wait for Eric's translation. Uh, The Vanity of the Arts and Sciences, give that a read. It's some A-plus trolldom. If if that's what it was written for, he had to put it out because of the fact that people are saying he was a black magician. It definitely can't be a a move away from magic or basically repudiating magic because he was still working on the three books right until uh, 1533. So why would he be doing that if he was said that the magic is terrible? So I think that if you read it with the eyes that it's him being extremely bitter, being a huge smartass it's one of the best like it's up there with uh, Giordano Bruno as far as like really sarcastic tracts from the renaissance onwards it's really quite great there's no real good biographies of Agrippa which is a shame he deserves one I and I hope that somebody in the, the not too distant future does a really good biography of Agrippa you've got biographies of John Dee by Jason Louvre and Benjamin Woolley and Glenn Perry that's enough we don't need any more Alistair Crowley I've read more than 10 biographies of him Tobias Churton, who I love, who I absolutely love, he's now doing a thing where it's where in the world is Alistair San Diego. It's Alistair Crowley here, Alistair Crowley here. There's enough biographies of Crowley, everybody. Crowley, no more. Let's get an Agrippa biography. Please, 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 somebody. Uh, There's an odd book called Commentaries on the Occult Philosophy of Agrippa by Willie Schroeder. It's a wiser, uh, wiser published book. Take it with a grain of salt. I will just say that. But if Agrippa is interesting to you, have some fun with that. I also think that another essential book is the fourth book of occult philosophy. Uh, get it. It's awesome. I go to that book for practical reasons more than I go to uh, the three books. Uh, yeah. I would, I would second that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Also very good is a book called The Language of Demons and Angels, Cornelius Agrippa's Occult Philosophy by Christopher I. Lerich. It's scholarly, but it does the philosophy and the context of Agrippa very, very well. He sticks up for Agrippa where even people like me have tried to put him down. He uh, He's very good at that. So it's, it's something to look into for sure. Besides the three books, and the fourth book, if there's one other book that I really want people to read uh, from this episode, is maybe one of the greatest books I've read on magic ever. And it was from that author I mentioned earlier, Dr. Frank Clausen. It's called The Transformations of Magic, Elicit Learned Magic in the Later Middle Ages and Renaissance. It is amazing. It is a great book. I can't say enough about it. 
Uh, it's still scholarly, but it is a tour de force if contextualizing magic is your thing, like it is for me. I was going to read more from it, uh, but I've, I was already reading enough this episode. But please get this book and please read it. And I think, and this is in no way me trying to put you down, Eric, in any way, shape, or form, but if I could talk to one person right now within occult scholars, I think it would actually be Frank Clausen. For one, he's teaching at the University of Saskatchewan, which is insane. I don't know if you've ever been to Saskatchewan or know of Saskatchewan. It is a desolate place. Good good for Clausen for teaching at the uh, University of Saskatchewan and I guess thriving there. Uh, his books are all amazing, but Transformations of Magic is a book that I think everybody needs to own if this is interesting to you. That's the show, Eric. That's it. You made it. So for those interested, head to whatmagicisthis.com. There you will find links to Instagram, to Facebook, which I don't really use very much, and to Twitter, which I'm getting much better at. Also on my website, there's going to be ways for you to be able to subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, all of them. If they have podcasts, I will be listed there. Also on my website, I will have show notes. I go out of my way for my show notes. They're really good. I think people seem to respond to them very well. So definitely check those show notes out. Uh, Reach out to me. If you feel that you have a question in any way, shape, or form, no question is stupid. I will answer. Uh, I'm not that popular yet, uh, but I really want to take my time with answering any of your questions. There's a reason I'm doing this. Uh, People have a lot of questions for magic, and I'm a pretty good and approachable person for you to ask, so please do. If you enjoy my podcast, say something about it. Uh, Not just to your friends, but maybe something online. Uh, Get the word out. Uh, I I appreciate it very much. And uh, if you can give me a nice rating on iTunes, that would be appreciated. And uh, Eric, thank you so much for being on here. We're going to end the show with the post-show quid pro quo. And uh, that is me. I get to ask you any question in the world, Eric, and you should try to answer it honestly. So here we go. Let's have some fun. You ready? Ooh, okay. I'm, I'm nervous, but I can do it. Don't be. It's a pretty easy one. Why do usually men involved or interested in the occult have beards or interesting facial hair? Go ahead. Well, I think that there is a few reasons. I think, first of all, I think that men who are interested in the occult, people who are interested in the occult, realize that if they have... The ability to grow a beard, it is their duty to grow a beard. I see. (laughs) Until very recently, Uh, I I had quite a large beard. Uh, You can see on my Instagram account, but I got rid of it Uh, it, anyways. I've gotten rid of mine before, too. Uh, You know, that's a really good question. I don't know. I think sometimes that has to do with kind of like the places where occultists tend to gather. Uh, for instance, Portland has a ton of occultists and facial hair is very, very popular here. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of like an old wizard who doesn't have a beard. Grant Morrison, he kind of shaved his whole head. Yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. But, uh, so but in a way, that's kind one. of interesting. <laughs> I don't think, does Jason Louvre have a beard? I don't no. think he's got a beard. No, he doesn't have a beard. I think probably because beards are cool. Mustaches are cool. Okay. You know, everybody and, wants and, a beard. And occultists, you have a beard. And occultists beard. Are, are cool people. You're not a magician if you don't have everybody. a beard. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, you need a beard. I mean, look at Gandalf. Look at like yeah. Merlin. Look at like all the all the classics had beards. Yeah. Plato had a beard. Socrates yeah. had a beard. 
Now, Aristotle did not have a beard, but everybody hates Aristotle, so Ayo. that's okay. <laughs> Agrippa had uh, a chin strap. Kidding. I think Aristotle also had a beard. <laughs> Wonderful. Eric. Athemius had a great beard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's enough, that's enough about beards. That, that's a whole other episode. Uh, that's, a whole, that's a whole other episode. Eric, I love the work that you do at arnomancy.com. Please give yourself a plug here at the end of this episode because uh, I, I think you deserve it. And not just deserve it. It is a great website. I try to steer as many people there ah. in my show notes. It's just like, if you don't understand what the art of memory is, Eric's got you covered. So, yeah, give yourself a plug. I mean, thanks. I mean, that's really good encouragement. I think I'm going to write more of those types of articles. So arnamancy.com is my website. I've got a blog where I talk about hermeticism and tarot and the art of memory and Kabbalah and astrology and all those sorts of weird-ass things. I also have a podcast, the Arnamancy Podcast, um, which we mentioned at the beginning. And I am Arnamancy on every social media platform you can imagine, including some that you can't imagine. Maybe even some that haven't been invented yet. Nice. So check out my stuff and talk to me online. I love talking to people on the internet. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was so much fun. I mean, it makes me just want to go read more Agrippa now. That's a good thing. That's a, that he's uh, he's deserving yeah. of attention. He really is. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I was just reading Agrippa this morning. I had like I I use his stuff so much. Like the three books are my constant companion, pretty nice. much. Nice. So yeah. we've got a little special announcement, everybody listening. This isn't a one-off. Uh, I will actually be appearing on Eric's podcast, Arnomancy, uh, probably sometime after this episode is released. We haven't discussed that yet. My show was a little bit more of like to give you the, uh, the, the in a nutshell, the kind of the introduction. Uh, we're going to be talking a bit more shop talk on Arnomancy's podcast or Eric's podcast. So stay tuned for that, guys. So if you like my podcast and you like this one and you think you know enough about magic or Agrippa, head over to Arnomancy.com, download his episode episode because we're going to uh, we're going to get our uh, our fingers into the dirt for a bit more with uh, some of the topics we are oh yeah we're gonna get filthy they're filthy <laughs> <laughs> i hope people enjoyed the show and uh, eric thank you again this has been uh, fantastic it really has i've had a ton of fun i really have it's been my pleasure it's been thank you no worries and uh for those of you uh following along come back we're gonna talk about more of this magic stuff if it's interesting to you but until next time my name is douglas bachelor you've been listening to what magic is this uh tune in next time uh stay luminous and we'll talk to you soon Bye-bye. <laughs>